Well, for those of you I haven't met, my name is Erin, and I work on staff with Challenge. I work primarily with freshmen, so if I haven't met you, it may be because you're not a freshman. Um, so I am really honored to be with you guys tonight. I was thinking, come May, I'm not going to know what to do with myself on Thursday nights. It's kind of like this weird thing, like, is it really Thursday? I should be with all of you. So I'm savoring some of our last Thursdays together before graduation, which makes me really sad. I feel like every May I, I tell God, I can't do this again. It's too hard. And then come August, I'm like, oh, new friends. I can't wait. <laughs> so um, praying already for this new group of freshmen coming in. I don't know about you, but I feel like they're everywhere. I think they're junior hires that will be freshmen eventually, but I feel like campus is overrun with children. And they, like, clog the dining facilities, and they're everywhere. But I think these are future students, so we should love them. Um, and maybe you remember going places when you had matching shirts and how much you hated that as well. So a little bit of compassion. But I don't know about you, but um, songs from my childhood, I remember and I recall them at really odd times. Probably you guys are younger than me, so it's not that odd for you to think of songs from your childhood. But I was thinking through, because um, I have nieces and nephews, and sometimes I like to be sung to sleep, and I'm like, what, what song? Like Mary Had a Little Lamb Gets Old After a Little While, and so I find myself singing like, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. But that's a pretty short song. Um, and then I don't know if you guys grew up seeing this one. I grew up in rural Oklahoma, so I think they also use like Sunday school to help us learn how to spell because we weren't exactly like breaking the limits on the ACT. So they started us early, and we sang this one. I don't know if you ever sang this song, the B-I-B-L-E. Yes, that's the book for me. I stand alone on the word of God, the B-I-B-L-E. Um, so Neil asked me to speak about, which he didn't use this topic, this, um, the Bible what? Is that what I'm supposed to be? What is the, the question? I'm going to answer that question, but I didn't realize that that was, thanks to Jenna in the studio, that that was talking about. Um, I have entitled it something else, but it's essentially the same thing. We're talking about how did we really get these books of the Bible? So you, you may have grown up in church like I did singing these songs, but then the questions are, so who put this big book together with all these little books? Like, how did that actually happen? And so one thing that I've really enjoyed in my older years is, is learning about just people throughout history and what they've done with their lives. Because you realize life is just so, the older I get, the more like, life is just so short. What am I doing with my life? And so I contacted my favorite and told him, I'm speaking on, essentially, we'll explain this word in a little bit, the canon, like how we got the books of the Bible. What is like one man that they should know about tonight? He's like, you should tell them about John Wycliffe. So some of you guys may know the story. I didn't, I learned some interesting things, which we're going to race through this because we have a lot to cover tonight. But John Wycliffe was one of the most famous priests of his day. He lived in the 1300s, so long, long, long ago. He was a leading scholar from Oxford, chaplain to the King of England, which I don't know how you get that job, but you got to be pretty smart and well-connected for that. But he spoke out boldly against the errors of the priests, the organizational hierarchy of the Roman church, and the corruption of the clergy of that day. Because what was happening was that the priests were lining their pockets, and the people had barely anything. And so Wycliffe just began to realize that the people needed the scriptures in their own language, that they needed this return to scriptures, that the leaders of the church needed a humility and a holiness and simplicity that was really lacking in that day. Things that we think are just commonplace now were not true in that era. And so he 
began just to be very convicted in his soul that the people of England needed the word of God in their own language. And that was just like heresy to the church. I mean, he was condemned and he just lived a very hard life. And you think, well, that's just like, could you imagine hundreds of years later, he would think that we would have these devices where we would just pull it out and it would light up and we could read scripture in our own language, that people all over the world would have scripture in their own language. I don't know if you've ever sat through something in a different language. I, is Natalie here tonight? No, Natalie and I went on a mission trip together and we went to a mini church service in a different language and she would try to translate for me and I'm like, it's okay, just, just you pay attention. And it's amazing how easily you, one falls asleep or you like, look at what the pastors wear, like trying to figure out the style, like your mind just goes a million different directions because you have no idea what's saying. And sometimes you'll pick out a word here and there and you're like, I still have no clue what is going on in this place. So could you imagine doing that for your entire life? Like never hearing God's word in your own language. So Wycliffe died before the Bible was ever translated into English, but it was finished after he died. But he was so hated that 30 years after his death, the people of the Council of Constance dug up his bones and burned them and then scattered him. So there would just be no evidence that this man had ever walked the earth. That's how much he was hated even after his death. But you and I can read the Bible in our own language because of men like John Wycliffe. And there were hundreds of other people that I could tell you about tonight who were burned at the stake, who were beheaded, who were drowned, who died horrific deaths because of the word of God, because they chose to live by it and live in it and under it, like what we encourage you guys to do with Christian Challenge. So tonight, we're going to be talking about how we got the word of God. So I have entitled this in my Oklahoma Latin phrase, sola scriptura. I need Remington here to say that for me. But what it really means is like scripture alone, that there is no other means of truth than the, the scripture that we have today. So I don't know about you, but when you think about, like, how do we get the scripture? Do you imagine, like, this dungeony, dark room with men smoking cigars and maybe, like, drinking whiskey and just making this decision? Sometimes I'm like, no, that's not what happened, but that would be really dramatic. Or was it, like, a very democratic session? Like, okay, friends, raise your hand if Titus should be in. And then if enough people raise their hands, I'm like, okay, check, Titus makes the cut. Or maybe it was, like, a negotiation, like, I'll give you James if you'll give me first and second Timothy. And then the back and forth like that. But that's not how it happened at all. So tonight we're going to look at how we got the Old Testament, how we got the New Testament, because it's different, and then the criteria for that. And if we have time, some frequently asked questions. So I may talk fast um, because we have a lot to cover. This is a really, really important topic because if you don't begin to grasp in the deepest parts of your soul that this is God's word, that every single bit of it is true, that there's nothing omitted, that there's nothing that can be added to it, if you doubt the trustworthiness of God's word, then you doubt the trustworthiness of God because it's his book and his love letter to us. And so it begins to impact the level to which we want to obey it and to apply it to our lives and to live by it. So beginning with the Old Testament, how did we get this canon? So what canon means is, let me tell you exactly what it means. It really is means like a, a reed or a measuring stick. So it's kind of this idea of like a book of the Bible was placed next to this measuring stick and it's made the grade, then it passed, and it was in the canon. So the canon really is just a list of all the books of the Bible. That's what the canon is. So we start with the Old Testament, which is a very good place to start. Um, The first really bit of canon we get, like the beginning of the biblical canon, is the Ten Commandments. So you read in Exodus 
32, verse 16, the tablets were the work of God. The writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. So it's like the finger of God engraved these stone tablets with his very words to the people. Then I was thinking, the poor Moses had to carry these stone tablets down the mountain like He was old, and they had to be really heavy, but these were the very words of God. This was the beginning of the canon. And so this collection of this absolutely authoritative word of God grew in size throughout Israel's history. So it didn't stop with, obviously it didn't stop with the canon. So Moses wrote additional books. What we know, those first five books of the Bible we know is like the Pentateuch. Um, Moses wrote those. And then after Moses died, then Joshua became the leader of the Israelites. And so in Joshua 24, 26, it says, Joshua wrote these words in the book of the law of God, which like, oh, that's, that's a nice error. But what's really interesting about this is because just a few years prior to that, Moses had written down in Deuteronomy 4, 2, you shall not add to the word which I commanded you or take from it. So those are God's words to Moses, like don't add to this and don't take away from it. So what we know from passage is that Joshua must have been fully convinced that he was not taking it upon himself to add to it or to take away from it, but that God himself had authorized Joshua to record these things and to preserve them for people. We see later on that Samuel wrote things down. King David, King Solomon, these prophets begin to write the word of God to the people. But what you see that the prophecy ended, there's no more additional prophets from God after 435 BC. So when you look at Jewish history, the people recorded actually in their writings that there were more writings that took place that were more historical, but none of them were considered worthy to be in the canon, that they were not the collection that God had for them. So what we see, according to Jewish sure that's outside of the Old Testament, the belief that the divinely authoritative word from God had ceased, that that was over that God no longer spoke to his people through prophets. So I don't know, have any of you guys heard of Josephus? He was one of the most famous um, Jewish historians in the first century. And this is what he said. From Artaxerxes to our own times, a complete history has been written, but has not been deemed worthy equal with the earlier records because of the failure of the exact succession of the prophets. So what he's saying is all these, these books that were written after we stop in Malachi, they're great books and they're historical, but they are not worthy. They are not considered God's words to the people. So the Jewish people generally had this idea that the history that took place after 435 BC was their history, but it was not canonical. Does that make sense? What's interesting too is you read in the New Testament, you think, did Jesus really have much in common? Like, did he agree much with the Jewish leaders of that day, but one thing they agreed upon was Jesus, the Jewish leaders, the Jews of that day, the Jewish leaders were in full agreement that the Old Testament, what we know as the Old Testament, those 39 books, was the canon, was the very words of God. There was no debate for them. So what we have today was 2,000 years ago what Jesus had, and there was no debate of anything to be added or excluded from that. And in the New Testament, you see um, Jesus and the New Testament authors quote and refer to passages in the Old Testament about 295 times, but not once do they cite any statement from any book or writings as having divine authority. And so if Jesus and the New Testament authors didn't cite other books, then we can kind of see that this work was complete. 
So some of you may have taken classes and heard about like these extra books. Um, so we're going to talk a little bit about these extra books, but not too much. So um, these extra books are not regarded as scripture for four reasons that we're going to talk about tonight. So number one, they do not claim for themselves the same kind of authority as the Old Testament writing. So they don't claim for themselves the same kind of authority as the Old Testament writings. Number two, they were not regarded as God's word by the Jewish people for whom they originated. They were not regarded as God's words by the Jewish people for whom they originated. So if the people who were reading these words didn't see them as God's word, then, then why should we today? Number three, they were not considered to be scripture by Jesus or the New Testament author. So if Jesus didn't consider them scriptures, then, then why should we? And finally, they contain teaching inconsistent with the rest of the Bible. So it doesn't match up. What they're saying is really in opposition to what the rest of the Bible is saying. So with that, we're like, these are great books for you to read for your enjoyment for historical purposes, but they are not considered divinely authoritative um, scripture. They're great value for history, for linguistics. They're stories of courage and bravery, but they're not scripture. So we as Christians today have no need to worry or to that the Old Testament is incomplete, that it's lacking in any way, that anything was left out. In fact, Jesus confirms the completeness of the Old Testament in the New Testament, actually, in Luke 24, 44 says, These words which I spoke to you while I was with you, all things be fulfilled, which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. Is this a problem? Should I just keep talking? Okay, I'm just going to keep talking. You guys can hear me, so it's okay. I think it's more for the recording. So what we see, I'm talking about the law, the prophets, and the writings. Those are the threefold big divisions of the Old Testament. So Jesus is saying, authentic. There's nothing else that needs to be added to those. They're complete in itself. Those 39 books that he had are the same books that we have today. That there was never a commission or a council or a committee that met to, together that said, okay, which books do you think should be in the Old Testament? Well, I think these ones. Well, I think these ones. That never happened. That it was really the people of God who discerned that there were certain writings from God, that they accepted those writings, they rejected other writings, and they began to form this body of books they recognized that the prophecy had ended, that God was, was silent, that he would, had ended his prophetic message through these men. There was going to be, then the 400 years of silence began. They were waiting for this Messiah. They heard these prophecies of this deliverer, this rescuer, the one that was going to free them from the, profession, the, the oppression of Rome. But what we see in this is that there were groups of people who ratified the books of the Old Testament, essentially what they're saying is, those are the books that you think, okay, yeah, we agree. Those are the same books that we agree. So it wasn't like um, there was a great debate about it. They were just saying, okay, we agree with you. So that's kind of the, the gist of the Old Testament. But moving into the New Testament, which kind of, we're going to talk a little, little bit about both for a few minutes, is that when you look at overall scripture in general, what you see is that Scripture primarily occurs in connection with God's great redemptive acts. So you see God's the story of Abraham, God calling Abraham out and his descendants. 
You see Exodus and how God freed these slaves and, you know, the wandering in the wilderness. You see the establishment of the people in the land of Canaan and the establishment of the monarchy and then the exile and captivity. You see all of these works of God throughout history. And the Old Testament closes with this anticipation of the Messiah. When is the Messiah going to come? And I mean, what do we celebrate? This week is Passover on Sunday, and then Easter is next Sunday. Like, we celebrate the risen Messiah. We look back at that, and they were looking forward in anticipation of that. And so what we see is that Jesus really gave these apostles, these men who are eyewitnesses to him. We would Initially, they were called disciples, followers of Jesus, and after the resurrection, they're referred to as apostles. So when I, you can use them interchangeably. So it was primarily the apostles who were given the role of writing in the New Testament. The Holy Spirit gave them the ability to write the words of God. And so in John chapter 14, verse 26, this is what Jesus says. So he's saying this to his apostles, preparing them like, I'm not going to be with you guys forever. Like, pay attention because really the work is just beginning. So he says this, but the counselor, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. So that was what the Holy Spirit was going to empower these ordinary men to write the words of Jesus, to remember all things. I don't know about you, but I have an awful memory. So this is just another example of the power of God enabling these men to bring to mind all that Jesus had taught them and to lead them into truth. So when you think of the apostles, kind of they were on equal, not kind of, they were on equal plane with the prophets of the Old Testament. And so they had the authority to to write and to speak the very words of God. In fact, Peter actually refers to this in 2 Peter 3, 2. He says, I want you to recall the words spoken in the past by the holy prophets and the command given by our Lord and Savior through your apostles. So Peter's saying the apostles, the prophets, their authority, like they're handpicked by God. Listen to these men. They're speaking the words of God. And we're this is a passage if you want to look at later. In Acts 5, it talks about how to lie to the apostles was the equivalent of lying to God and to the Holy Spirit. It was a serious thing to lie to the apostles. These men were men of God. You also see Peter classifying Paul's letters as scripture very early on. So also in that same chapter in 2 Peter 3, 15 through 16, Peter says this, just as our dear brother Paul also wrote you with the wisdom that God gave him, he writes the same way in all his letters, speaking in them of these matters. His letters contain some things that are hard to understand. So isn't it nice that even Peter had a hard time understanding the words of Paul? So if you don't understand, you are in very good company, friends. He says, which ignorant and unstable people distort as they do other scriptures to their own destruction. So this of other scriptures is really the Old Testament scriptures. That is what he is referring to. And Paul's writing here are therefore considered worthy on the same level as those other scriptures in the Old Testament. And so there's not the Old Testament's greater than the New Testament. No, no, these are all the words of God to his people. So you see the apostles had the authority to write the words of scripture that was given to them by Jesus. And that most of the New Testament was actually written by the apostles. There are some books that weren't. So you think, well, if the apostles were like the prophets, then why is there any dis like, disagreement in the books of the New Testament? Well, hold on. We will get to that. Because 
I know you have questions, and I'm going to try to answer your questions that I think you may have. I try to think like you would think and then think of the questions you would have, but I'm sure that I didn't get catch everything. So we can talk later. So we're going to move on to the criteria for the canon. How did they decide which of these books to put in? Because there was a lot, a lot circulating in that time. So especially those books that weren't written by the apostles, that weren't written by the eyewitnesses, what do you do? And so how were people to judge between what was true and false? The Bible doesn't give this set of criteria. We don't officially know exactly what they used to decide. This is what most theologian, theologians theologians um, believe, These th- boiling down to these top three things. So the first thing is prophetic authorship. So the book needed to be written by a prophet or an apostle or one who had a special relationship to an apostle or a prophet, such as like Mark was really close to Peter, Luke was really close to Paul, those kind of things. So those who'd witnessed the event or those who had recorded the eyewitness testimony, those were the things that were to be determined as like, these are the holy scriptures. What's interesting too is that while these things were written, it didn't happen like hundreds of years after these men were dead. No, this happened while they were living. And so there were eyewitness accounts so people could be like, no, that is totally false. You are not there. You don't know about that. And so they can fact check each other. But these apostles didn't write like works of fiction. You know, like in your writing classes, there's a different motif for writing fiction and like writing history. These men wrote as if they were writing history. What you notice, and you can look this up later because we're short on time, in Luke 3, Verses 1 to 2, Luke lists the people who were in control of Jerusalem at the time, the leaders of that time. He's, what he's saying is like, fact check me. Go ahead. Look it up. These people really did exist. This really did happen in this time period. He wouldn't put that down. It was too risky to, to put it down if it wasn't true because someone could have looked it up. And so over and over again, you see in Scripture, leaders who really, Pontius Pilate really existed, Caiaphas really existed, these stories that we're reading about that happened in the life of Jesus kind of this week leading up to to Easter, these people really existed. So it was absolutely necessary that these books had divine authorship. That was essential, that this was God's word through human authors. So that's the first thing. The next thing is doctrinal consistency. So did what was written line up with what the church knew to be true of Jesus Christ in his teaching, or was it in contradiction to that? Did this passage line up to the rest of scripture, or did it say something that didn't line up with that either? So the Holy Spirit helped them to discern these things, whether the teachings were consistent or inconsistent. Did they contradict with what Jesus was, with who he was, and what he taught? And then the last thing is the acceptance in the early church. So again, looking back at that passage in John 14, 26, you know, Jesus says, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things which I said to you. So we have this promise from Jesus that the Holy Spirit was going to enable them to write these passages, to recognize what was true. So any book that claimed to be canonical, that claimed to have divine authority, yet diverted from the truth of Christ, would have been rejected by Jesus' disciples. They were still alive at that time. It wasn't like they were long gone. You, you hear things about, well, it wasn't really recorded until after a certain, certain point in history. Most scholars believe that by 90 AD, it was, everything was totally written and assembled. So fact-check some of your professors. 
Google that, huh? Um, <laughs> but the apostles did give some guidance into what was included because they were the eyewitnesses. They were the ones who could say, hey, yeah, I know that didn't happen. Or, yeah, I can affirm. I was there. Ask me questions about what Jesus was wearing that day. I know. Um, he was probably wearing the same thing. I don't think he had a lot of options. Probably the same thing they all were wearing, brown. I just picture very brown in the desert. Um, but you may have another question, questions that I ask. is like, but were there other things that these apostles wrote? Because surely they were writing a lot of things that weren't included. How do you know, how do they decide which part of their writing to include? Because in 1 Corinthians 5, 9, Paul refers to this previous letter. So you're like, did it get lost in the mail? Like, what happened to this, this letter? So there were... Um, things that were written by the apostles that were not preserved as scripture. And that's one of the things you realize that the church was really tasked with the preservation of scripture under the direction of the apostles. And so if it wasn't preserved, then it wasn't intended to be in scripture. So we can really trust that the scripture we had today is the scripture that God wants us to have. Another thing you may be thinking is like, well, what about those books that were not written by the apostles? Um, some of those would be Mark, Luke, Acts, Hebrews, Jude as well. Like, how did those things come to being? Who are those people who are that? Because we don't even know there's a debate on who wrote some of these books. So what you see is that Christ gave the ability through the Holy Spirit for people who were not eyewitnesses through the work of the Holy Spirit to write things down. And we just have to trust that process happened and that God was at work. And that there were apostles who were alive who could verify that. That it wasn't just like they were riding in a cave and no one saw it and then discovered it a thousand years later. And they're like, oh, I'm sure that must be true. But that's not how it happened at all. That there were apostles alive to affirm the absolute truth and authority of those things. You know, Paul would have affirmed the book of Luke and Acts. Peter would have affirmed Mark. Those kinds of things. The church just had to decide if they were hearing the voice of God through these letters. So one thing that I really want to point out in this is that the ultimate criterion of the canon, of the canosity, is divine authorship, is that God wrote it. It is not that the church put their stamp of approval on it or a group of men did either, but it's that these were divinely authored letters and books. And so you may be wondering, well, who decided which books to be placed in the Bible? And I found this amazing quote. If you want to, like, tattoo it on your back, I think it would raise a lot of questions. Um, not that I'm endorsing tattoos, um, but I just think this quote so beautifully explains what I'm trying to say, which I may not be explaining very well. It says, this is by a man named J.I. Packer. He says, the church no more gave us the New Testament canon than Sir Isaac Newton gave us the force of gravity. God gave us gravity by his work of creation. And similarly, he gave us the New Testament canon by inspiring the individual books that make it up. Does that make sense? Isaac Newton didn't give us gravity. God did. God is the one who also gave us his scripture. And this is his word breathed out to us. And so we can ultimately trust him as the divine author. There is what you'll learn in history when some of your classes, you guys may already, it's like councils that met, that discussed which books would be in the New Testament. But the New Testament was already created. What they were doing is they were simply recognizing those books. They were not deciding which books would be in it. They just recognized the books that the early church had been using for hundreds of years before. So I think we have quick time. I'm just going to go through some frequently asked questions, and I'm going to go fast. So if you have questions later, I would love to talk more. So question number one that you may or may not be asking. 
should we expect any more writings to be added to the canon? You're like, oh, should we? No. The answer is no. Capital N, capital O. In Hebrews 1, verses 1 and 2, it says, In many ways, in many and various ways, God spoke of old to our fathers by the prophets. In these days, he has spoken to us by a son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he created the world. So this of old is talking about the prophets. And in these last days is suggesting that the God's spoken word through his son is really the culmination of, of God's greatest gift to us. And so there's not going to be any more. We can trust that what we have in scripture, the same scripture that you're reading today is the same scripture your great, 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 great grandkids are going to read too. We can just have full confidence in that. Okay, that was a really brief answer. Number two, how do we know that we have the right books? Like, can we be certain? Yes, you can be, yes, with a capital Y, yes. You can be absolutely certain because our confidence is not based in, really in history but in the faithfulness of God, that God is a faithful God and he loves his people and that he longs for his people to know his word so they can know him through his word. We didn't live in the time of Jesus. Obviously, we're alive now. We have technology. You can hear me through the microphone. Like, they didn't have that then. And so if we didn't live during the time of Jesus, then we wouldn't know about it unless we had the scripture. We can trust that God is in total control of history. We can also trust that God takes his word very seriously. In Revelation 22, verses 8 through 9, he spells out eternal punishment for those who take, those who add from Scripture. So God isn't mincing around, not just like, hey, that was a joke, don't add or take away. No, no, he takes it very, very seriously. So the same God who created everything you see, like this super blossom that's going on in Southern California and part of the Red Sea and rose his son from the dead, is the same God who is able to assemble and to preserve his word throughout all of time. It is the word of God. God is eternal and his word is eternal. And so just remember, there, is no, there are no strong objections, nor are there any strong candidates for additions to the canon. So you can just rest in that. Third question, this is our last question. You know, at some point, this is like a hypothetical question. What if you were on this like archaeological dig in Israel with your class and you discovered one of Paul's epistles that had never been seen before, ever, ever, never, ever. And you are made, you're like CNN is there, like you are made most famous, most famous archaeologist. I can't even name one archaeologist, but your name would be like a household name because you found this Pauline epistle. Well, let me just tell you. Um, what we talked about earlier, how the church chose to preserve the very words of God that, that they chose. It was, so if you found it, therefore it was not preserved. It was not deemed worthy of the church to preserve. So it could be written by Paul. I don't know. I think it would have really been destroyed by now, but maybe not. Um, you could be the new Dead Sea Scrolls. Maybe not, but... The chances of you, A, finding something, and B, just realizing that if the apostles wanted it preserved, it would have been preserved. That we can really trust in the faithfulness of God, that he was going to preserve his word. And two, like, almighty, loving, faithful God, why would he, like, for 1,900 years withhold something from his people that revealed more of his character and his heart? That's not who God is. And so we have the complete words of God. He's not going to add to that. You may be thinking, well, what about great, 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 great grandchildren? No, no. What they read is what you're going to read because there's not going to be anything added to it ever. 
So you may be thinking, well, is there something missing? Um, the answer is no. In all of literature, again, there are no strong candidates come close when you consider just the scriptural considerations of their doctrinal consistency. A lot of books that you're learning about in classes, they have, they're re- they have really weird things in them that are not consistent with the rest of scripture. If you've read them, they're crazy. Um, in order to have the type of authority that they claim for themselves. And so just trusting that God is faithful and that his word is true and that he has preserved it, he is capable of that, and he will continue to preserve it. So in conclusion, four things. Number one, God is the one who decided which books we placed in the Bible. It was up to God. God did it. He chose it. He preserved it. So God is the one who decided which books should be placed in the Bible. Number two, we know the correct books are in the Bible because of the testimony of Jesus. We know from what he said when he was with his disciples. We also know that he handpicked these apostles to write his word. So we have full confidence in Jesus. Number three, the recent books that have claimed divine inspiration have proven themselves to be frauds. The recent books that have claimed divine inspiration have proven themselves to be frauds. And the last thing is that scripture is complete, that nothing should be added, nothing should be subtracted, that the Bible alone is authority, that sola scriptura, that Latin, that just means scripture alone, that our hope is in Jesus and we can know Jesus because of the written word of God. And so this book that has these 66 little books inside of it has this crimson thread running all the way through it. This thread of redemption of of people who could not on their own be made reconciled to God without sacrifice. And so you see in the Old Testament that the animals had to be sacrificed, that the unblemished lamb, and then you see what we get to celebrate in just a few weeks, that the perfect sacrifice so that you and I could be made right with God. And so this book is not just like the Iliad or the Odyssey or any other ancient book. It's, it's far more worthy than any Shakespearean work that this book will last forever because of the very words of God. And you can have complete and total confidence that everything in it is in it because God wanted it in it. So let me pray, and then we're going to welcome up the worship team for one more song. Father, we are just humbled and amazed that that in 2017, we stand here able to read your word in our own language, in large part because other people willingly laid down their lives for the truth of your word. And I just pray that we would be men and women who treasure your word, that we would store it up in our hearts, that we would live it out in our lives, that it would just mark us and transform us. Thank you, Jesus, for coming, for choosing humility and just being brutalized so that we may know the Father. And so we are just indebted. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for speaking and breathing life into these words. So as we spend time in scriptures on a daily basis, would you just bring them alive and penetrate our heart and our soul and our mind and may we be marked with them forever and ever. In your name we pray. Amen.